Hello, and welcome to the IJ Notes podcast, where we will take you behind the scenes to explore the work of journalists around the world. I'm Maya with the IJ Net team. When it comes to abortion and reproductive rights, disinformation has long circulated, attempting, among other goals, to influence harder line legislation restricting people's autonomy over their bodies. In the face of this challenge, top of the mind today, in the wake of last year's Supreme Court ruling in Dobbs v. Jackson in the U.S., which overturned the constitutional right to an abortion, journalists must help their audiences effectively distinguish facts from falsehoods. To delve into reproductive rights and disinformation, I spoke with Felice Fryer, a healthcare reporter for the Boston Globe and the president of the Association of Healthcare Journalists. We spoke about the prevalence and impacts of disinformation surrounding abortion and reproductive rights, what journalists should do to promote credible information on these topics, and advice for journalists during these complicated times. Welcome, Felice Fryer. Thank you for joining us on the IG Notes podcast. Thanks. It's been over a year since the Dobbs decision overturned Roe v. Wade, and a lot has happened since then. Today, we will be talking about disinformation and reproductive rights, starting with how prevalent is disinformation surrounding abortion and reproductive rights these days? What are some examples that you've personally seen? Yeah, I would say there's lots of uh, disinformation out there and, and misinformation, which is a little different. Um, it comes in several forms. Um, one simply results from a lack of understanding of human biology, and um, and that makes it easier to, to use terminology that's kind of inflammatory because people don't really know what's going on with, with the fetus. And a good example is um, this talk of the fetal heartbeat um, and how it starts at, at, at five or six weeks. It's kind of a misnomer because the heart isn't even formed until around the 10th week. So what they're calling the fetal heartbeat is is kind of what what, what one doctor referred to as a flutter in, a, in, in the area that will become the future heart of the baby. So it's like a group of cells that are um, pulsing a little and um, it's visible on the ultrasound, but you can't hear it through a stethoscope, for example. So it's kind of an exaggeration to call it a fetal heartbeat, but that gets people uh, imagining this cute, tiny little baby <laughs> inside a person at, at, at five and six weeks, and that's really not what's going on. Then you also have um, direct and deliberate distortion of the facts, such as asserting that abortion is dangerous, that it causes breast cancer, that it causes depression. Um, these are not true. I mean, pregnancy is many times more dangerous than abortion. And um, this is especially true with related to the uh, discussion about uh, medication abortion. So um, the New York Times did a, a great study um, or just a great um investigation after the ruling in Texas, which concluded that the FDA's uh, approval of um, mifepristone, one of the drugs used in medication abortion, should be invalidated. And uh, the Times looked at more than 100 scientific studies, and all of them concluded that the pills are safe. And they also looked at the research that the plaintiffs in that case presented, and they had cited five studies Two of those studies didn't even measure safety, 
and the other three concluded that abortion medication is safe. And yet somehow um, the judge was uh, persuaded that th these pills are not safe. So that's the kind of thing that we're seeing. Another aspect of it, and it's a little more subtle, is um, kind of a misrepresentation of why people get abortions. There, there's an implication that, you know, basically slutty women are seeking pleasure and don't want to deal with the consequences. When in fact, the reality is that, that half of all abortions occur among women who are living in poverty and the majority are already mothers. So in many cases, we these are desperate women who can't afford another child. Um, another aspect of this is that many women, and it's hard to quantify how many, but it's not a tiny mi minority, are coerced into sex. So it's not women who are um, you know, just running around seeking their own pleasure. Oftentimes, women are impregnated by men who who force them into it or persuade them into it, you know, sometimes it's rape, sometimes it's just, you know, insisting on it. And so it's it's way more, the need for abortion is way more complex than is, is being portrayed many times. What are some concrete impacts of this disinformation as it spreads or the, any that you've seen? Well, I think one of the most obvious is that it, um, is the laws and policies that we're seeing being put in place, restricting access to abortion. We also have the phenomenon of the um, these crisis pregnancy centers, um, which are set up often sometimes like right next to abortion clinics. And these are set up by abortion opponents um, to basically lure women in who um, have unwanted pregnancies. And women often go in believing that they're going to get medical care when in fact what they're going to get is um, propaganda, you know, and, and of people trying to talk them out of their abortion. Um, often there, there's no licensed professionals there, but they, they will offer free pregnancy tests and ultrasounds. A lot of women go there because they, they, they can get an ultrasound, but then um, I've read stories of women who've gone to these centers and they will like delay and delay the, giving them the results of the ultrasound until sometimes it's too late to get an abortion under the rules in, in certain states. So um, it's just uh, that that has a very concrete effect in that it, it can lead to actually preventing a woman who may want an abortion from, from getting it. There's certainly a lot of impacts on policy. And can we talk more about the impacts on individual people? What are some of those outside of the crisis pregnancy centers that you think you've seen? Well, I think there's a lot of confusion now. I mean, many women, especially, you know, people who are mothers, you know, people who are taking care of children, people who are working multiple jobs, they can't keep up with all the details of what's happening in the news. So they hear abortion rights are being taken away, um, but they may not realize that they still have options, you know, so even women in states that protect abortion rights have this idea that that it's it's going to be hard to get one or it's not possible to get one. So it can affect them by um, delaying their them taking action on it or, or even missing out altogether on the opportunity to have an abortion. Since the overturn of Roe v. Wade, have you seen a change in disinformation on re reproductive rights from before to now after? 
know if the arguments or the content of the disinformation has changed that much. Um, I think really what we're seeing is that it's, you know, it's risen to the top of discussions. So there's more talk about it. So whenever you have more discussion going on, you have more opportunities for um, misinformation to spread. But I couldn't say that there's, um, you know, that the essence of it has changed very much. It's just more salient right now. What should journalists be doing to ensure they're reaching people with credible credible information on reproductive rights? Well, you need to understand who you're talking to and where the information is coming from. Um, I'll give you a great example. Um, preparing for this interview, I Googled fetal heartbeat because I wanted to make sure I described accurately exactly what that is. And one of the first things to pop up was a link to this group called the Charlotte Lozier Institute. And this is essentially, and they admitted on their uh, about page that they are a pro-life um, group, but they present themselves as offering science and statistics to support the pro-life movement. And it's a very well-designed website. It, it looks like it's full of good research and I don't know that it's not. I don't know that everything on there is wrong. Um, I didn't check it all out. But the fact that it is set up, it was established by a pro-life group for the purpose of supporting the pro-life movement, that is a red flag, right? So you need to be, you need to understand wh where the person's coming from when they're offering you information. And if it's clear they're coming from a specific ideological position, then you need to really check what they're saying and really verify it. So I was just skimming through. Like I say, I didn't attempt to verify everything in there, but there was an article written by a, a woman who identified herself as an obstetrician gynecologist. And one of the statements she made in there um, took me by surprise. It was something like, there were more, there's more, women suffer more health problems and are more likely to uh, commit suicide after abortion than after pregnancy. And so this was footnoted and I went to the footnote and it was an interesting footnote because there were no links to any of the research. It was a big fat footnote listing probably six or seven studies, no links to any of them. Um, many of them seem to be finished studies from the 1990s and so if I were, I didn't try to find all of these studies, but if I were writing a story about it, I would have gone to their cited source material to check on the quality of those studies and to check on whether the studies really say what this person said they said. So, you know, you just have to be careful um, when people are making factual statements or purportedly factual statements about abortion that you, you verify it. Yeah, so you just described uh, essentially a very difficult, as I'm understanding, trial, trying to find information online and going through this and trying to go to the footnotes and you couldn't get the information. And as a seasoned journalist, that was difficult for you. How do you think that translates to people who aren't as informed or don't know as much about the news or the media? Right. It's really difficult, especially when you're talking about scientific research. And this happens in almost anything in healthcare. You know, you need to ask people to provide the evidence and then you need to have the know-how to assess the evidence. So it's not like I couldn't have gotten to it. It was that I, 
I wasn't working on a story, so I didn't. But if I were on a really tight deadline, it would have been difficult for me to find all these studies that were done in Finland. And and so, yeah, it's it's really challenging. And that's why people need to be very cautious. But that that's true about anything in healthcare. But I think it's really important when we're when, um, you know, the temperature is so high, you know, and feelings are running so strong on an issue that that you make sure that your your facts are very correct and very clear. Yeah. Do you think as a result of this, journalists should be more aware when they are citing sources and articles and making sure those sources are more easily accessible? Um, well, yes, they, they need to um, they need to be aware that it's easy to distort or misrepresent what the science shows. And it's easy to mis- misunderstand it, to genuinely misunderstand it. So um, you need to look at the data very carefully and ask someone to help you, you know, find a medical person or somebody who does medical research and ask them to help you assess the studies that are being cited. What advice would you give as the president of the AHJ for journalists to navigate disinformation? I think there's two things that journalists really need to keep in mind. One is that abortion stories are not just political stories. I mean, they are political stories, but also abortion is a form of healthcare. So you need to keep in mind that abortion stories are also healthcare stories and the healthcare ramifications of decisions that are being made around abortion need to be part of what you write. And then another issue, and this is um, a problem in many areas, and that's um, the pitfall of false equivalence where um, journalists genuinely want to be fair. And they especially don't want to be seen as having a liberal bias. So they try very hard to give an equal hearing to everybody. But that's not necessarily going to give the reader the best information. So I think a good way to think about it is to separate opinion and fact, right? So somebody says, I believe that abortion is murder and it should be outlawed. That's an opinion. And that's an opinion you can quote. Likewise, if somebody says, I believe all women have a right to bodily autonomy, so abortion should not be restricted. That's another opinion. You can put both those opinions in. If someone says abortion is harmful to women's health, that's something that can be either verified or debunked. And so you don't, you shouldn't quote something like that just to give that person, just to be fair to that person's opinion, because they're presenting it as a fact. So you need to um, verify it or debunk it, and don't just quote it because that person said it and you're trying to be fair. So, you know, you could give equal time to different opinions, but don't give equal time to facts and falsehoods. You know, make that distinction, because giving equal weight to statements that are untrue or to um, viewpoints that aren't based in science or aren't accepted by the majority of um, people, medical people, that's not that's not being balanced. That's that's deceiving your readers, and it's I think it's a real struggle for for journalists to to do this the right way. But if you can make that distinction between opinion and facts, opinions can everyone's entitled to their opinion. People aren't entitled to their facts, as someone once said, was that Mark Twain? I don't know. So. 
Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up bias because I was wondering, not just as, I mean, as a woman journalist and women journalists in general, do you think it's more difficult to report unbiased news, whether you're on the pro-life or the pro-choice side as a journalist during all of these issues? Um, You know, I I think you're right. Uh, Emotions are running high and it's hard not to have emotions and to not feel outraged when people say things that run counter to what you might deeply believe. And that would be true from any, for anyone on either side. But it's a journalist's job to try to put that aside and just look at the facts. And, you know, when you're deal- dealing with a question like whether uh, mifepristone is, is dangerous, I mean, the facts on that are pretty clear. It's been on the market for 23 years. There's tons of experience with it all over the world. So it's not being opinionated or or being unfair to um, lay out those facts for your readers. But yeah, it, it can be hard. It can be hard. Um, you know, the overturning Roe was a huge event for this country and um, no living per- person could not be affected by it, right? And and you you just wanna um, step back from your emotions and, and try to stick with the facts to the extent possible. There's a point where objectivity can be overemphasized and more than objectivity what you want to strive for is is fairness and um making sure and open-mindedness so make sure that that you you look at everything um fairly and there may be critiques of um the abortion rights camp that are legitimate you know there may be studies that they're citing that aren't as great as they say they are and you know, be prepared to um, to assess those as well. You know, with with a, with a clear eye. But yeah, I'm sure. And and I think at some point you you have to acknowledge that um, everyone, even if you're a journalist, you have an opinion. And if you're living it and it's affecting your life, um, you're going to be reporting it from that perspective. But I think you can still do so fairly. So going forward, what do you see for the future? Do you think we're going to see an increase in disinformation, maybe a decrease? Do you think there's going to be more um, information readily available for people so they can get the accurate information that they're looking for? Or do you think these issues will continue to persist? Oh, I think it's going to continue to be a problem because people have an agenda and they're going to push their agenda in whatever way they can. And sometimes um, doing that is going to involve, um, you know, spreading this information. I think that's true in many arenas of our life. Um, there's a big problem is that, you know, we don't have Walter Cronkite. We don't have um, a universally agreed upon trusted source. So I think it's really hard for um, for readers and viewers and the average person to know who to believe and what to believe. And I, I feel like that's, you know, here I am, I write for the Boston Globe and I feel like I can give out good information, but oftentimes I'm kind of preaching to the choir and I'm not, you know, and I'm not doing anything to, to combat the disinformation because the people who are influenced by the disinformation um, aren't reading the Boston Globe, you know, they, they're watching, they're, they're going to other outlets. And how can a mainstream journalist um, reach those people and try to get the facts to them. And I'm talking about anything, not just abortion issues, but 
um, climate change, just any of these other controversial topics where there's a lot of misinformation circulating. I think that's a real struggle. I don't really have an answer to that. And it troubles me a lot. How do I reach, how do I get the facts to the people who are not um, reading sources that are factual? You know, it's a real problem. You know, when I go to conferences, there's always like a panel on disinformation. And I always say, okay, what, but what can I do? <laughs> you know, well, how do I reach these people? And, you know, one answer that I got that was somewhat satisfying is, um, although not fully satisfying, is that one thing, getting just getting good information out there gets it out into the ecosystem. So maybe, you know, one of the Boston Globe readers has a cousin who's watching Fox News, but at least that person has access to the facts that can inform their discussion with their cousin, you know. So just getting good facts into the ecosystem um, does help. And, and that's that's something that that we can all strive to do. Is there anything that you'd like to add that you feel like I've missed and you want to include? I think a lot of people are afraid to address this directly, but um, it's it's a big part of what's what's going on that we need to think about. And, and that is that um, a lot of this abortion debate is being driven by religious beliefs. And we need to think about, you know, whether, you know, the consequences of allowing uh, religious beliefs to dictate public policy and medical care. I mean, if you think, I mean, many abortion opponents believe, and I respect their belief, but they believe that life begins at conception. They believe that when the sperm enters the egg, at the same time, the soul of a human being enters that little cluster of cells. Um, they're entitled to believe that, but are they entitled to let that belief determine what everyone is allowed to do. And I think it's a, it's a troubling question because if you believe that abortion is murder, you're really um, moved by what seems like a moral imperative to you, but it's still a belief. So I think we need to have that argument a little more intensively, but you know, how religion is very important in people's lives and uh, how do we allow, how do we balance the need for a variety of beliefs and uh, the need to set public policy that involves more than just the beliefs of one set of people. Thank you for listening to the IJ Notes podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn to be the first to hear about our new episode when it is published.